Hello there. Glad you've chosen to join with us for the FX Podcast. We are in week 10 of our summer series in the book of Joshua titled Inheritance. And we are in the midst of an inheritance battle. We are arguing over what inheritance is and should we have what we have or not have what we have. It's, it's a battle of the wills and in any inheritance that can be the case. But with God, it's not. God says, this is the inheritance I'm giving you, and what He declares is true and right. And really, the people of God had to have faith to believe this. Believers in Jesus, we find ourselves waiting for an inheritance like God's people were and had been at this time when the book of Joshua was being written. They'd been waiting 600 years for the promised inheritance to Abraham, living in slavery for 400, wandering in a desert for the last 40 years, all clinging to a promised inheritance that all of those people I just mentioned wouldn't see in their lifetime, all while being told to be strong and courageous. And so would we still believe and lead others to believe that Yahweh saves, that that's what Jesus' name means, it's what Joshua means, they're the same name, Yahweh saves, and believe in His promised inheritance? Because that's what Joshua led his people to believe, in the promised inheritance of God. Just like Jesus, Yahweh who saves, leads us to believe the Yahweh's promises are good and true and will come to pass. One of the theme verses of the book is Joshua 1.6. It says, Be strong and courageous, for you will distribute the land I swore to their fathers to give them as an inheritance. And so he's telling Joshua, Moses has been leading the people. He has now died. You've crossed over. There's a battle in front of you, and I need you to be strong and courageous as you walk into my promises and believe that I will bring an inheritance and that you will be the one that gets to watch how it's distributed. You know, and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have been a witness for all of human history to the inheritance promise. At the beginning of creation, said God created them in His image. He created them male and female. That God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit all agreed together, the plural form of God used in the Old Testament, that, that they were going to create man with free will, that man would, they knew man would turn their back on God and he still promised that he would come through for them. And, and even God throughout history started to raise up witnesses, Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, Moses, the prophets, the disciples in the New Testament. He raises up witnesses that will testify to the goodness and the promises of God. And those stories, those witnesses pass those stories down and we have them written down so that we have a witness to the inheritance promised to those who believe in the God of the Bible. This week's message title is A Witness. A Witness. You see, there must be two independent witnesses present at the same time and who must attest and sign a will for a will to be valid. It's essential that both witnesses see the tester signing and executing the will. Otherwise, the inheritance is in question. See, we need reminders. We need witnesses to tell us how things should happen. And if we don't have it written down, if we don't have those witnesses, we'll take advantage for ourselves, for our own inheritance that we want instead of what God promises. You know, I'm a person that can easily exaggerate. 
Anybody who knows me knows that. If you're in a room with me with my wife, she'll be quick to correct me and say, Matt, that's not exactly how it went down. And it's not that I'm trying to lie. It's I get excited. You know, I, I would be a great fiction writer, but the story of God is nonfiction. And so we have to be careful not to exaggerate, but to tell the truth as a witness of what Scripture says. And a witness simply is, tells what they saw. It's, it's what I attest that I will give my life to, that I will stand behind what I said I saw. And we are to be witnesses not only of what's happened, but also of what is coming. You know, what in our lives serves as a witness to others? It should be everything. Everything about us should serve as a witness. You see, Christ, Jesus, who is Yahweh who saves, he is the Joshua of the New Testament, is our witness before the Father. He died in our place, and he stands before God, giving a testimony to God of the changed lives that have accepted him. He is a witness on our behalf, and we are to be his witnesses then as mediators between him and the world around us, just as he is a witness to the Father, and that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are a witness, a proven, constant witness to the promises and the inheritance of God. In Joshua 21, we ended two weeks ago. Last week, we talked about Caleb. And in Joshua 21, 43, it says, So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their fathers, and they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them the rest on every side according to all he had sworn to their fathers. None of their enemies were able to stand against them, for the Lord handed over all their enemies to them. None of the good promises, the promised inheritance, the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. Everything was fulfilled. You see, this is grace. It says the Lord gave Israel. They didn't earn it. They didn't fight and win battles. God was constantly doing miracles so they could win. He wanted to show them that, yes, I want you to participate, but ultimately I just want you to watch what I do as you're doing it with me. That's what we're called to be. And so in the Old Testament, anytime you see the Lord gave, that's grace. That, that's Grace's unmerited favor. Mercy is, I don't give you what you deserve. I let you off. I kind of say, I'm not going to give you what you deserve yet. Justice is, I'm going to give you what you deserve. And grace is, I'm going to give you what you could never earn and could never deserve. And that's what God is trying to show all the way through Scripture, that that us as human beings who have turned our back on God, He's trying to show us who He is in His justice, His mercy, and His grace, all giving us the truth of His Word as an inheritance, as a witness to who we are and who He is. And so they've been fighting for seven years, and now Joshua has given Israel their land. He's, He's making sure all the allotments are divided. But there's one group of people that that they have to travel back. You know, God has done his part now, but now what? What will the people of God do as they wait for the already promised? It's already been fulfilled, but not fully yet because there's still enemies around them. There's still problems. There's still a world that doesn't know the God of Israel, and, and they're supposed to be witnesses and tell them. Will they be a witness, or will they begin to take credit for themselves? And at this moment, there's a group of Israelites who who have to cross back over the Jordan. That's where we find chapter 22 of Joshua. 
says this in 22.1, Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh and told them, you have done everything Moses, the Lord's servant, commanded you and have obeyed me in everything I commanded you. You have not deserted your brothers even once this whole time, but have carried out the requirement of the command of the Lord your God. Now that he has given your brothers rest, just as he promised them, return to your homes in your own land that Moses, the Lord's servant, gave you across the Jordan. So these guys had been faithful. They had been faithful to fight for what wasn't even theirs. You see, that's us today as believers. We're called to fight for something that we already have. We already have the inheritance. We already have the promise. We already have been a witness of what God has done, but we're supposed to go and fight for others on behalf of others. We're supposed to go tell others. That's exactly what the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh did. They left their home on the other side of the Jordan and went in and fought alongside their brothers, even though they had the inheritance. Today, so many Christians, once we know we're Christians, it's like, then we just want to wait for Jesus to come back instead of moving into the battle, instead of engaging the body of Christ, instead of being his witness, we kind of just retreat and, and, and Joshua says here, you guys didn't do that. You could have tried to do that. You could have, but you didn't. You've done everything the Lord has commanded. And so it's now time for you to go back. It'd been seven years. They had not been in the land of their promise, that, that they had chosen to fight alongside their brethren and not get what they were promised, but to make sure that others got the promise. Man, what a testimony. That's an incredible testimony. They fought multiple tours of duty in the promised land on behalf of others. In Joshua 22, 5, it says, Joshua says, look, go back to the land, but here's the deal. Verse 5, only carefully obey the command and instruction that Moses, the Lord's servant, gave you to love the Lord your God, walk in his ways, keep his commands, remain faithful to him, and serve him with all your heart and all your soul. Joshua says, look, You've got this promise, but you remember, be full of care for God and others. You're going from battling all the time to to going to a life where now there's a different kind of battle. You're not going to be warring necessarily. You're going to be learning what it means to battle for the truths of God and for your own hearts and your own families. You see, God's law is responding in care and love for Him and others. That's why He says carefully obey, because if we truly believe that God has written these things down because he loves us and he wants others to know his love and the truth about who he is, that he is just. And you can't be loving without being just. Otherwise, you're just selfish. You just do what you want. And and he says, look, God's law is responding. And he says, be a witness of what God has done by obeying, by, by, by carefully looking. In other words, being full of care for God and others of his great care and mercy. See, Joshua was repeating one of the most important pieces of scripture in Jewish history. Jews today still repeat this phrase when they pray. It is the phrase. It's kind of like when we say in Jesus' name, this this is the Shema of the Old Testament that was given in Deuteronomy chapter 6. You know, and all scripture is inspired by God, but not all scripture is equally inspiring. (laughs) This verse in Deuteronomy 6 is inspiring to this day. It still is the thing that drives all the commands. Let me show you. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, it says, "This remember, Deuteronomy is when they've just been delivered out of slavery. God is giving Moses the law. 
Moses is communicating to the people now what they need to do. They're not slaves anymore. They don't know how to act. How do we act? What do we do? And this is what Moses is commanded by God to tell the people. Listen, Israel. See, the first step is to listen. And then he says, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Interesting that God has to say he's one. Like they're separate parts of him, but he's one. And that's exactly what he is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but he's still one in unity of thought and purpose. Verse 5, it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. In other words, they're not to be laws you do to try to earn something. They're to be beliefs that you have by faith deep within you that God loves you and that you want to love Him back, that He has redeemed your soul and you want to give your soul on behalf of others, and, and that All the strength you have has been given to you by God, so you just want to give it back to Him. That's what it means to have it of the heart. Verse 7 of Deuteronomy 6, Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be symbols on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, He swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that He would give you a land with large and beautiful cities that you did not build, houses full of every good thing that you did not fill them with, wells dug that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. And when you eat and are satisfied, here's the key, be careful not to forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. This is grace. And God says, love him, repeat them, be my witnesses, repeat them in your home, bind them, write them on your homes, bind them as a sign on your hand and on your forehead, write them, like, be my witness, let people know that you're listening to me and that I am speaking, that I'm real, I'm not far off in a distance, I'm a God who wants to be personal and remember everything you have, you didn't earn, it's grace, so be full of care and not forget who I am and who you are and what the world around you is and their desperate need to see who God is. You see, most of us, we're looking to figure out a way not to care. Instead of being full of care, we try to figure out, man, I've cared enough today. How can I just check out? How can I just have some me time? Versus having some time where we take our cares to God, where yes, we have quiet time, we pull away, but but it's not trying to ignore the world around us or be distracted, but it's, it's so we can truly engage God and care for Him and care for others. See, we want to dull the care because it can be overwhelming. And we try to forget who we are in the world we live in. And that's why we love entertainment. It's because it helps us to forget. It helps us to not see the reality around us, but to see a game or a, a video that's already played out. We know the rules. We, we may not know the outcome exactly, but it's the anticipation of the outcome. And there's a part of that that's, that's God. That that's how it is with his inheritance, the already but not yet that we have. And he says to be his witnesses. We are to be a witness of the grace that he has done, what we never deserved. And that's what he told Israel in Deuteronomy 6. Jesus goes on to say it himself in Matthew 22, verse 35. He says, as one of them, an expert in the law. So remember, Moses is commanding the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh to go across. And he says, just be careful to follow what God said, because I want people cared for well. And I want God 
to be loved. So one of them, an expert in the law, the law that Moses or that Josh, Moses gave, that Joshua was telling the people, asked a question to test Jesus. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? Remember, there are over 600, almost 700 commands in the Old Testament. Jesus said to him, look at what he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. He repeats the Shema. This would have been like, duh, like uh, the thing you say every time you pray. And then he goes on in verse 38, this is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, as just as Joshua told the people to go back and to represent God, he's saying, look, the way that you listen and love your God and the way that you love your neighbor as yourself, all the law, everything that's been said about God depends on that because that's who God is. God loves himself and God loves his creation and has a specific place in his heart for people that he breathed his image into. So he asks us to do what he does, to be like him. And that's what Jesus is explaining here. He says to be a witness by the way in which we live, not to get something, but because we understand that through a relationship with Jesus, what he did for us to die in our place, we have an inheritance that is promised that can never be taken away. In Joshua 22, 6, it goes on to say, Joshua blessed them and sent them on their way, and they went to their homes. Moses had given territory to the half-tribe of Manasseh in Bashan, but Joshua had given territory to the other half with their brothers on the west side of the Jordan. When Joshua sent them to their homes and blessed them, he said, return to your homes with great wealth, a huge number of cattle and silver, gold, bronze, iron, and a large quantity of clothing. Share the spoil of your enemies with your brothers." You see, God says that someday we are going to get to heaven and he is going to distribute the rewards. He's going to distribute the rewards of what we've done. These aren't things we're trying to earn. These are things that we just are grateful for, that God doesn't have to give them to us because we're just grateful to be a part of the family. But God is a God who wants to bless. He wants to be generous. And sometimes in this life we see that, and for many they never do. And they're trusting in an inheritance, not here, but an inheritance that is to come. And these people had been trusting for over 600 years for this moment. And so we can trust a lifetime and maybe stand before God one day. And if we followed Christ, know that we have an inheritance with him. Jesus also gives a warning. He says in Matthew 6, 19, He says, be careful, don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but collect for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Remember, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Let me ask you, are you confident in the treasure that you have in a relationship with God, the the treasure of heaven, that we live in a world that's decaying, that's falling apart, that rips on a regular basis, rips itself apart. Do you know that the ultimate treasure is for eternity? That there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth according to God? That, That we can trust the promises of God and that that's deep in your heart so that when you don't get what you want, when you have struggles and sickness and trials and problems, that you recognize that Jesus himself said, this earth destroys everything that could be treasured, but in heaven, 
There's treasure that can never be destroyed. And the ultimate treasure is not in things. It's in a relationship with God. It's being a witness and having him witness to say, this is my son whom I well, I am well pleased. This is my daughter. There's nothing greater than to know that you're loved like that. In Joshua 22.9, it goes on to say, The Reubenites, the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh, left the Israelites at Shiloh in the land of Canaan to return to their own land of Gilead, which they took possession of according to the Lord's command through Moses. When they came to the region of the Jordan in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built a large, impressive altar there by the Jordan. This is a huge no-no. God had said, that Jerusalem would be the place where his name would dwell, that at the tabernacle and the altar in the tabernacle was the only place of sacrifice. He, he was saying, there's only one way to get to me. There's not multiple ways. You can't just make up your own way and say all paths lead to the same place. God says, yes, all paths do lead to the same place. They lead from separation from me. They lead to death because you're not obeying me. But my path leads to life heard a pastor say this week, if you were trying to figure out what path to take and you saw a big wide path which a bun- with a bunch of dead people on it and you saw a narrow path with a guy waving at you saying, hey, come on, which path would you take? And see, that's what God is doing. The path is narrow. God says there's only one way. So for them to build this altar was a serious offense. And that, well, that's what we see in verse 11 of Joshua 22. Then the Israelites heard it. And said, look, the Reubenites, Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar on the frontier of the land of Canaan at the region of the Jordan on the Israelite side. When the Israelites heard this, the entire Israelite community assembled at Shiloh to go to war against them. See, they see how egregious this is. To make up another way to be saved that God didn't say can deceive, maim, and separate people for eternity. And so they knew we can't tolerate this. God doesn't want this. If this spreads, then it's not going to be a proper witness. We're giving a false witness, which is one of the Ten Commandments, to not give a false witness. And we can't allow them to give a false witness. The true witness is in the tabernacle. It's it's coming to Jerusalem three times a year, as God commanded in the Old Testament law in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. He said, you're going to travel there. You're males. You're going to offer the sacrifices. There's one way, not multiple ways. Now, what's interesting is this accusation flies out, not a bad accusation, but the Israelites don't go on a fact-finding mission. They immediately want to go to war. And this is where we are in our culture today, that one person sees something, one person reports, maybe even a few people report, and we jump on a bandwagon to go to war without really doing the fact-finding that we need to do. And it's true. We make altars all the time. You know how we do it? We say, God, if you do this here for me, I will do X, Y, Z. Let me say that again. We say, God, if you will do this here for me, then I will do X, Y, Z. That's what an altar is. You build an altar, you present a request, you present a sacrifice, and you say, I'll sacrifice this if you give me this. And God says, that's not how it works. But that's not how I've laid out scripture. There's only one altar and only one way, and that's me, and I've given you my word so you know it. That there's no discussion, there's, there's no confusion. 
goes on in verse 13, the Israelites sent Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest, to the Reubenites, Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead. Then they sent 10 leaders with him, one family leader for each tribe of Israel. All of them were heads of the families among the clans of Israel. They went to the Reubenites, Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead and told them, this is what the Lord's entire community says. What is this treachery you have committed today against the Lord of Israel by turning away from from the God of Israel, by turning away from the Lord and building an altar for yourselves so that you are in rebellion against the Lord today. I love this. These men go on a fact-finding mission. They send a priest. They send representatives from each tribe to go discuss. They don't just go to war. They don't just start. They say, hey, what is this that you've done? We, we don't understand why you would even think to do this. You're in rebellion, building an altar that isn't the one God said to build. Verse 17, wasn't the sin of Peor, which brought a plague on the Lord's community, enough for us? You can read about that story in the book of Exodus. So that we have not cleansed ourselves from it, even to this day. And now, you would turn away from the Lord? If you rebelled against the Lord today... Tomorrow he would be angry with the entire community of Israel, but the, but the land you possess is defiled. Cross over to the land the Lord possesses where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take possession of it among us. But don't rebel against the Lord or against us by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. See, we should be just as offended when people say that there's another way to get to heaven besides Jesus. Jesus offered himself on the altar of the cross. He was the mercy seat. If you read the book of Hebrews, it explains all this, that everything in the tabernacle pointed to the fact that Jesus was the ultimate witness on our behalf, that that he went before the Father, he witnessed of God's goodness, and we crucified him. And to build another altar, to say there's another way, is such a rebellious affront to Almighty God when he has made it absolutely clear and simple so that there's no confusion. Verse 20 goes on to say, Wasn't Achan, son of Zerah, unfaithful regarding what was set apart for destruction, bringing wrath on the entire community of Israel? He was not the only one who perished because of his sin. So they're even saying, look, this isn't just about you. This could bring a curse on everyone. Wouldn't it be great if we talked about that in the church? If we took sin that seriously, that when I don't care about myself and I don't care about other people, it affects multiple relationships for generations. That's what we see going on in our world. But the opposite can happen too, where when we take it seriously, we can see people become more like Christ, more like God for generation after generation. And instead of a pathway to unfaithfulness, we can see a pathway to faithfulness in God. Verse 22 or 21 of chapter 22, the Reubenites, Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh answered the leaders of Israel, the Israelite clans, Yahweh is the God of gods. Okay, so they're saying the right things, but they still, did they do the right thing? Then he says, Yahweh is the God of gods. They repeat it. In other words, Yahweh, the great I am, they use his holy name, is is the Elohim of all all else. That's how that translates. Like, Like, he's the ultimate. He knows, and may Israel also know, do not spare us today if it was in rebellion or treachery against the Lord that we have built for ourselves an altar to turn away from him. May the Lord himself hold us accountable if we indeed intend to offer burnt offerings and grain offerings on it or to sacrifice fellowship offerings on it. Oh, 
So they're saying, we didn't build the altar for that reason. So that would be like, well, then why'd you build it? Like, because an altar is for sacrifice, right? So, so why, did you, why did you build it if, if that wasn't your intent? Verse 24, we actually did this from a specific concern that in the future our descendants might say to our descendants, your descendants might say to our descendants, what relationship do you have with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a border between us and you descendants of Reuben and Gad. You have no share in the Lord, so your descendants may cause our descendants to stop fearing the Lord. So the reason they built this altar was to be a witness to the people around them, to those across the Jordan and to their own people. It wasn't to make sacrifices. It was to be a reminder to say, hey, I know you got to cross the Jordan. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. But you know what? You can do it. And you need to go to Jerusalem and make the sacrifices. Like, wow, that's a powerful thing. It's like the cross. Sometimes the cross could become an idol, except it's not because the cross reminds us, an empty cross reminds us that Jesus died and came back to life. And it reminds us that we're called to pick up our cross and to follow him. It's no different. It would be like them putting a cross up on their side and saying, and then the people saying, wait, you can't put a cross up. That's That's not the real cross. Well, no, it's not the real cross. It's not supposed to be. We're not going to pretend like it is. We just want it to be a reminder of what God's promises are so that everyone remembers that we're a part of this. In verse 28, it goes, or 26 says, Therefore we said, let us take action and build an altar for ourselves, but not for burnt offering or sacrifice. Instead, it's to be a witness between you between us and you, and between the generations after us, so that we may carry out the worship of the Lord in His presence with our burnt offerings, sacrifices, and fellowship offerings. He says, look, it's to be a witness. This altar is simply a witness of what we're supposed to do. We're not going to use it to do what we're not supposed to do. It's a witness to remind us to say, no, 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 you don't get to go there. you got to go the way God says to go. You know, it's amazing. In today's culture, so many people will wear crosses, metal crosses, whatever, thinking that it's some kind of protection, that that they'll grab onto it. It's kind of an altar around their neck. But they don't understand that that cross, just like this altar here, is simply a witness of what it really means to die to yourself because Christ died and to live for Him because He lives for the Trinity. That's the same thing. It goes on and it says, Then in the future, your descendants will not be able to say to our descendants, you have no share in the Lord. We thought if they said this to us or to our generations in the future, we would reply, look at the replica of the Lord's altar that our fathers made, not for burnt offering or sacrifice, but as a witness between us and you. You see, God wants us to be a witness to one another and a witness to the world around us of the inheritance that is coming. That it it has been signed by the blood of Jesus, and we can have confidence because of the witnesses who have told us, and someday we are going to witness His coming again. In verse 29, it goes on to say, We would never rebel against the Lord or turn away from Him today by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering or sacrifice, other than the altar of the Lord our God, which is in front of His tabernacle. 
They're like, we are not going to do this. We, we have declared to our people, it's just a reminder of that we, need, we have to enter through the tabernacle. And Jesus' body was our tabernacle. That, that Christ died because he wants to tabernacle with us in the heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's always been his purpose, but there was a veil. But when Christ died on the cross, the veil of sin was ripped in two, so we have direct access, that no longer is there this distance, but we have an assured promise of God. In verse 30, it says, When Phinehas, the priest, and the community leaders, the heads of Israel's clans who were with him, heard what the descendants of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh had to say, they were pleased. In other words, leveler heads prevailed leveler heads prevailed. They didn't go to war and say, we tell you to tear down that. We, we, okay, yeah, we, we can live with that. That's okay. Like, where is this in our culture today? We can't do this anymore because we don't have any unifying truth. We just, we just go to war with each other and fight all the time instead of fact-finding and asking questions and drilling things down to their most basic principles. We don't even teach that in school anymore. We don't teach how to logically think and how to boil things down to the most basic things. That's why we've set aside God's Word, because God boils things down to the most basic of things, which is loving Him and loving other people the way He says they're to be loved. And we don't want to hear it. We want to build our altar for our worship for the God we want instead of coming before Him and becoming the people He wants us to be and to be His witnesses. In verse 32, it says, then Phineas, oh, sorry, I got to finish. In verse 31, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the descendants of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, today we know that the Lord is among us because you have not committed this treachery against him. As a result, you have delivered the Israelites from the Lord's power. That's incredible. Your heart has led to, to peace. In verse 32, then Phinehas, son of Eleazar the priest, and the leaders returned from the Reubenites and Gadites in the land of Gilead to the Israelites in the land of Canaan and brought back a report to them. The leaders, the Israelites were pleased with the report and they praised God. In other words, they celebrated that, that they didn't have to fight. They celebrated that God worked this out. They celebrated that leveler heads prevailed. That's what we should be doing in our culture. But instead, we love to celebrate when we're right. We don't like to celebrate when God wins. We love to celebrate when we've won. And we want to give a zinger to prove it versus saying, I just want God to win. I want to be a witness of God's winning, of who he is. It goes on, it says, they spoke no more about going to war against them to ravage the land where the Reubenites and Gadites live. In other words, it was done. No more gossip, no more conversation. It's done, settled. So the Reubenites and Gadites named the altar. It is a witness between us that the Lord is our God. In other words, they named that altar, the altar that was setting as they go into the promised land, the altar that was there to remind them, they named it a witness. You see, there are all kinds of things in our lives that we can use to be a witness, that God does in our lives, things that are reminders to us to be a witness. And we can name those things and let people know what they are. In 2 Corinthians 13, Paul says this. This is his letter he's writing to the Corinthians church, and he's talking about the testimony and, and witnesses. And he says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every fact must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I gave a warning when I was present 
the second time. And now I give a warning while I am absent to those who sinned before and to all the rest. If I come again, I will not be lenient. In other words, I'm going to war. He says, look, we have all this false witnessing going on, false testimonies going on in the church of God. We're not testing anything. We're not checking things. We just take someone's word and we jump on the bandwagon instead of pausing and saying, hey, what does God have to say about that? Maybe you misinterpreted that. Maybe we need to dig a little bit deeper into this. And that is our culture today. The number of people that will post things on Facebook without ever fact-checking it, without ever thinking, I wonder, well, it looks good, so it must be true. Well, did you check it? with other witnesses? Did you, did you drill it down? Paul says, I am angry that you're, le- you're living that way, and I'm not going to be lenient when I come, because that kind of a lifestyle destroys people. It doesn't love God and love people. It becomes a false witness to draw people to yourself instead of to God. First Timothy 5, Paul's writing Timothy, trying to teach him how the church should behave and teach him as a leader what he should expect. Verse 19 of 1 Timothy 5 says, Don't accept an accusation against an elder, that's a church leader, unless it's supported by two or three witnesses. Publicly rebuke those who sin so that the rest will also be afraid. Publicly rebuke those who sin so that the rest will be afraid. See, we don't do that today. We can make false accusations, and then once it's out in the papers, they might put a retraction on like page 20. Or, or someplace else in the, in the blog and say, well, legally, we, we put a retraction in, but nobody read it. It didn't get the headlines. And then they don't prosecute those who made the false testimony. You see, we used to be, you were innocent until proven guilty. Now in today's culture, you are guilty until you can prove your innocence. And Paul says, we can't have that in the church. And we need to stand up against that when we see it. And we need to let people know that they are being false witnesses so that they are afraid to not be a false witness and not love God and love people well. And then in verse 21 of 1 Timothy 5, he says, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus. Remember, Christ Jesus, he says, I solemnly charge you before Yahweh and the Messiah who is Yahweh who saves. And to the elect angels, so he's like everything, to observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing out of favoritism. You see, it's so easy to want to witness on behalf of people that you want their favor. You know, a plea bargain, a deal. That There have been a lot of bad things that have happened in our justice system because we've used prejudice and favoritism. Listen, justice is supposed to be blind. It's supposed to look at the law and carry it out. That, that, that when it isn't carried out, there should be a declaration of mercy and grace and a responsibility placed on the judge for that decision, because that's what God did. But see, that's not what we have. But Paul says it needs to look in the church like it's supposed to look in heaven. And he says, don't just accept accusations. Do some digging. Like, again, Phineas and the other Israelites went and did some digging. In Matthew 18, verse 15, it says, If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens, you've won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two more with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he pays no attention to them, tell the church. But if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like an unbeliever and a tax collector to you. 
You see, a tax collector in these days, you had to have a relationship with you. You had to pay your taxes. But you didn't have to be their friend. You didn't have to buddy up to him. You could pay your deal and walk away. And he says, look, this is the process that we're supposed to have. If someone sins against us, we're supposed to feel that and then and have a conversation with the individual. And if there's an actual sin, not a personality difference, but a sin, then we go get someone else to, to kind of verify some other witnesses to say, do I see this right? Am I, as Jesus said, am I not seeing the plank in my own eye, but I'm just seeing the speck in theirs? Could you help me? Oh, and by the way, I'm concerned for my brother because if he keeps sinning, that may be an indication that he doesn't love God and he's not loving to people, so I'm concerned. And if out of that concern, those witnesses agree and they confront and that person still doesn't repent, like Paul said in 1 Corinthians, Jesus says it here in Matthew 18, we have to bring it before the church. These people aren't walking with the Lord. And if they don't pay attention, it doesn't mean we hate them. It says we just have to say, we don't think they're believers. They need to repent. Just like Phineas and the leaders went and said, you need to repent. What are you doing? And they said, oh, no, 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 we're good. This is why. And Oh, you're right. You don't need to repent. Yeah, there's, there's unity now. There's peace. You know, in Acts 1-7, this is what Jesus said about being a witness. His last words on earth were about being a witness. He said to them, those were those gathered, the disciples, it's not for you to know the times or the periods that the Father has set by his own authority. In other words, you can't make deals with God. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, you're going to tell the truth about what has happened. You're going to tell the truth that there's no more war for us, that that Jesus is going to come back and bring a war. But now we're to tell people he's going to come back with warriors. You need to get ready. Verse 9 says, After he said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood to them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking up into heaven? This Jesus, this Yahweh who saves, this Joshua who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven, that he's going to come again. You see, we're to be his witnesses that Christ is coming back. They passed this down so that we could now read this from witnesses, eyewitnesses who told us the truth, eyewitnesses who this truth cost them their life. They didn't get earthly riches and earthly wealth and earthly positions because they believed this. It actually cost them everything. Most of them died martyrs' deaths to try to tell people about the love of God and the love of people and the law of God and how it's loving. The religious people of Jesus' day crucified him, as did everyone else. We all just stood back and watched, just like they're watching here. And the angel said, why do you stand here watching? Go, be his witnesses. Can I just tell you, today so many people will be on their phones watching something happen, recording it, instead of intervening. Instead of risking their life and loving people and standing for justice, they'll just record things and post it because they want to get likes. We should be, as Christians, the one that enter in to the problems of our world, not with the solution of we can fix it, but with the solution of Christ is the one that can fix this, that you all need Jesus. And if Jesus were here, he would stand and do this, and that's why I'm doing it. That I'm not building an altar to try to get you to like me or solve some problem. I'm pointing you to the ultimate altar, who is Jesus, through what I'm 
doing. You see, that's what God wants. Let me ask you, are you His witness? Have you accepted Him? Have you read the Word? Have you, do you know that Jesus is who He says He is and that He was a witness who walked this earth to prove that He was God, died and resurrected? He ascended into heaven and He's coming back. If you know that, then we are called to be a witness of the inheritance that is coming. Just like for 600 years, Abraham and all of his offspring had to be witnesses of the promise that was coming. And along the way, there were those who weren't Jews who were grafted in, who believed and became Jews. They, they said, I want your God. And they obeyed and gave their lives to represent and be witnesses for him. See, God calls us to be his witnesses, and we need to be very careful what we witness to in the way we speak, the way we think, the social media posts that we do. And if you want to be his, Jesus says, I will be a witness to the Father that I will not hold your sins against you, but I will forgive you. And when the accuser comes, I will witness and I will look at the accuser and say, they are forgiven, they are mine. The accusation will not stick that you can enter into heaven, enter into the promised land and the reward that you have with me as a part of my family. Listen, if you want to pray that prayer by faith and ask Jesus to come in to gain an inheritance that you cannot earn, God gives it. That's grace. Pray that prayer. Ask him to come in and make him, make, make you into his witness. And it should be natural. Witnessing should be a natural. So for those of us who know him, why isn't witnessing natural for us? Is it because we don't really love God with our full heart, soul, mind, and strength? How about we start working on that? How about we look at the commands and love them? Say, God, we want to obey you, not because we're trying to get something or get a better life, but because we really want our heart, soul, mind, and strength to be yours so that we can witness to how awesome you are, how awesome your church is, how awesome it is to know that there's an inheritance when there's a world just trying to get everything they can out of life because you only live once and oh well. That is not the God of our book. Can I encourage you today? Be his witness. Use everything in your life to witness for him. Tell people about him. Represent him and point descendants and generations to come to the one way, which is Jesus, Joshua, Yahweh who saves, who paid the penalty for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this message. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the reflection that it is through the entire Bible. We love you. We thank you. And we praise you like they praised you when there was unity. We praise you because you are God and you go before us. We don't earn anything. It's because of your mercy and grace that you give to us. And that someday when we die, there'll be rewards, not here, but in heaven because of what we've done. And anything we receive here is just grace. And we should smile and thank you and continue to be your witnesses. Help us to be your witness to a lost world in your name. Amen. Thanks for joining us. And uh, we'd love to see you on Sunday. Or uh, if not, we hope you tune into the podcast for week 11 in our Joshua series, chapter 23. Thanks.